Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Farmer Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is October 8th, 2021. We were all a little surprised to hear that NIH Director Francis Collins will leave the position after 12 years running the world's premier biomedical research organization. And while we wish Dr. Collins well as he gets to spend more time in his lab, his departure raises, once again, questions about the Biden administration's approach to federal public health agency leadership. In addition to the well-chronicled wait for an FDA commissioner nominee, Biden now has a second important health agency leader to nominate and push through the Senate. Matt, you looked at this for us. You think the Collins replacement could give new life to an important issue for the drug industry? Uh, yes. Uh, Collins has been an important voice uh in uh, favor of not doing something on the margin rights that uh, NIH holds. The idea that uh, if there's a product that's trying to develop with uh, uh, patents based on um, taxpayer research that uh, the government holds, or taxpayer-funded uh, research, I should say, uh, the, the government holds the ability to come in and say that, uh, um, you know, we can uh, uh, take back control of this patent if the product isn't being uh, made available. I mean, I think it's traditionally seen as a uh, means of actually producing it if a company isn't through kind of, you know, bringing it to uh, fruition. But uh, uh, drug pricing act activists have argued that sort of if it's not available in the sense that um, it's too expensive for people to uh, to get access to, then it should be uh, um, it should be made uh, available through uh, margin rights. And uh, um, that's never really been uh, been used, but uh, as the uh, drug pricing debate has kind of uh, increased in intensity, uh, there's been a long uh, um, standing hope that sort of perhaps uh, instead of kind of waiting for Congress to do something, that sort of an administration could uh, um, push it as uh, um, as well through this means or through the other you know administrative means that uh, an administration has, and uh, um, the. Um, the fact that sort of kind of uh, colleges were kind of been in both the uh, Obama administration and then the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, and uh, you know while there's been a lot of saber rattling on drug pricing, the Democrats were kind of really uh, uh, forced the issue in this way, and he has been one of the uh, the folks saying that it's not where uh, um, the mechanism is uh, meant to apply. So uh, with him leaving and perhaps another uh, you know legislative collapse uh, of. Uh, uh, drug pricing reform on the horizon with uh, um, HR3 uh, seeming to be in trouble uh, because of uh, um, moderate dissatisfaction in the uh, um, in Congress. It uh, could be an opportunity uh, both because of uh, his departure and because of sort of, kind of the need uh, perhaps for uh, political action on the uh, on this front that's not uh, going to uh, come from Congress. That's where kind of the Biden administration uh, may take another look at uh, marching rights and decide to uh, um, to push forward with them. It, this is this is this is an interesting debate because I, I guess I'm and I'm I know this is kind of a marching rights is kind of an NIH thing, but I mean the the thinking I guess always is if if the agency head doesn't want to do something, Congress isn't going to be all that excited to do it. You know, at least at first. So can I mean. Is for, was Francis Collins kind of acting as sort of a gatekeeper with this by you know, because he just keeps saying this isn't what marching rights was intended for? I mean, so if they, it, I mean, can, can the NIH director be a gatekeeper for you know let it allowing you know kind of a 
you know, this Martian rights idea to, to kind of push forward for drug pricing? You know, I mean, true, kind of one person obviously sort of can't, uh, you know, dictate policy in the uh, the federal government. Uh, you know, if uh, political officials really sort of kind of thought this was the right way to go, they would, you know, either just sort of kind of sit them down and say, look, this is what what's going to happen. Or, you know, if they really sort of uh, balk at it, they, they, you know, they could replace him if they sort of felt that strongly about it. But he's obviously a uh, um, a bulkhead in the uh, um, in the sense that they would have to have, to have to sort of kind of, uh, you know, think of some way of sort of uh, massaging that issue if he sort of kind of wanted to make a uh, make us think about uh, them moving forward without his uh, um, his blessing on it. So he was uh, um, obviously not through kind of the uh, the the king of uh, marching rights. He wasn't the uh, the only uh, deciding factor there, but he was definitely a, uh, a big factor in terms of sort of kind of uh, um, uh, influencing sort of kind of how uh, how aggressively the uh, the feds moved on the uh, on the question. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so yeah, so another you know something that will definitely make the uh, the confirmation hearings interesting as we go forward, assuming we get a nominee, uh, you know, in the coming weeks, which of course leads us to the the ongoing wait for a nominee for FDA commissioner, which, you know, I don't have to remind anybody who listens to this podcast. We've been waiting since day one of the Biden administration for an FDA commissioner nominee, and we still don't have one. And we only got a little more than a month left before Janet Woodcock would, by statute, have to leave as acting commissioner, unless some, unless she, unless there actually is a a name uh, given out. There was a report this week that the White House may be close to making a decision and another name was thrown out there. But the speculation about that person ended because the person came out within a few hours and said, I'm not a candidate. So we're back to we don't know, you know, you know, what what uh, what's essentially going on here. Um, So for you guys, do, do you think do you think Dr. Collins is pending departure is going to influence how the White House handles the FDA opening? I mean, I don't know if you feel like, do they want to have these kind of two high profile nominations kind of going at the same time? Or is it just, is that even a factor in this? It seems like they might have to, because I think the White House said they wanted to have Collins' replacement ready before, or nominated at least before he leaves. And so if they need to nominate somebody for FDA pretty shortly, um, I guess unless they're just going to put in another acting, <laughs> um, it seems hard for them not to end up going at the same time. I mean, I think the at least right now, like the FDA position will likely, I think, be a more intense kind of political fight potentially or just draw more attention because of FDA's role in the pandemic. Obviously, NIH is heavily involved, but I don't think they've like had the same eye on them in terms of like politics and potential controversy in the way FDA or CDC or some other parts of the government have during COVID. So um, I mean, I, I think people probably would get frustrated, right, if they nominate somebody for NIH before they nominate somebody <laughs> for FDA. But again, I think that um, their NIH certainly does handle some issues that get political. Matt mentioned margin rights. You know, there's issues, there's been issues that come up in the past, like fetal tissue research, you know, things that sometimes um, do get tension. But comparatively, I feel like NIH has been able to often steer clear of politics and get a lot of bipartisan buy-in. 
Um, so I think it, it probably might be easier for them to find somebody for NIH, but it, it would probably frustrate people if FDA, um, you know, doesn't get done first or at least at the same time. Yeah, FDA does have the uh, the tighter deadline for uh, the administration to make a decision because, uh, as we've, we've reported, that uh, um, unless there's a, a nominee by uh, November 16th, uh, they have to come up with a new acting uh, commissioner at, uh, at FDA because of the uh, um, uh, the rules around how uh, how long General Woodcock can stay in the uh, position uh, um, as, uh, as acting or anyone really can stay in the position as acting, uh, not just Woodcock. Uh, per se, but uh, I think you're absolutely right, uh, uh, Sarah, that it's uh, probably uh, trickier to find a head of FDA than a, uh, a head of NIH, uh, um, uh, you know, sort of the, um, the politics around, uh, um, you know, uh, research and uh, um, patent rights notwithstanding, that kind of, there's, there's so much sort of that uh, um, touches on, uh, um, on what the FDA commissioner uh, does. And, uh, you know, just like uh, um, the um, the the patent rights or the marching rights issue isn't dictated by Collins alone. The getting a uh, permanent FDA uh, commissioner won't for kind of necessarily her change the agency's direction uh, uh, terribly much per se in terms of for kind of their uh, pandemic response or uh, or anything else. But uh, um, it does for kind of a, you know symbolize that sort kind of there's a uh, um, there's a, a you know seriousness of effort on the uh, the Biden administration's part. Yeah, I still think we would still get some fireworks at the NIH director's confirmation hearing. If if for no nothing else, then the 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 I don't know what you call them allegations, whatever. There seems to be confusion uh, over whether or not NIH grants went to a lab in China that was related to this. And you know, Tony Fauci has knocked that down multiple times, but you know, I, I suspect that would come up again and. You know, maybe some other issues, like you said, March and Rice and so forth, that would probably generate some uh, some some interesting back and forth among at least among the committee members. But um, yeah, this is something else that's event again again gonna you know uh, uh, cause people to you know pay close attention to Senate dealings going forward. And there's going to be a big push you know before the end of the year, obviously before Dr. Collins goes to not leave those positions open. So next up, we're going to probe once again into another favorite topic in recent weeks, which is pandemic-related communications. Peter Marks, the head of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, said this week that he wondered whether the FDA and CDC could have better coordinated things on the COVID vaccine front. FDA, yeah, I, I, I heard that. FDA and CDC advisory committees diverged somewhat in their decisions, and Marx thought someone should look at the tensions there. He said that vaccine messaging should be harmonized. So I'm going to be the first one to raise my hand and agree with him on that one. Um, we've talked several times on this podcast about how the messaging on vaccines has been muddled, sometimes seemingly for no reason. But is it a good idea to harmonize the outside advisory committees? Uh I'm curious what you all think of this. You know how you how you how you keep the messaging on point when you've got multi potentially differing scientific opinions. I think that um, it is a bit confusing, even as a, a reporter with you know a greater amount of expertise in what is going on here than the general public <laughs> in terms of you know what is FDA's role in terms of vaccines and what is CDC's role in terms of vaccines. Um, particularly, I think it's been a little bit 
maybe different in the pandemic perhaps than in some other circumstances. But I guess the way I heard Marx's comment was, you know, we shouldn't have two advisory committees because there's that's just going to mean the public is going to hear more, you know, scientific disagreement. And that to me doesn't seem like the best Perhaps there are legitimate reasons, you know, to think about whether there's better ways to structure this and do this. But um, I think there's been this instinct among people in the federal government during the pandemic response um, to kind of feel like they have to oversimplify things to the public mm-hmm. and to be to create like one consistent message when science is more complicated than that. And then people eventually just seems like no matter what, they find out the science is more complicated and it's not as clear cut and then they feel misled. So, I mean, I think like what he was, people obviously most recently like ASIP and the Verback um, FDA's panel disagreed kind of on exactly who the booster shots should go to so far. And, you know, I think the reason why there was disagreement and even, um, you know, CDC director um, Walensky in a Yesterday, I was she was quoted in a stat piece from a public event that was the other day, and she was saying, you know, there was equipose here, which essentially means, right, this is something that's still seen as kind of like ethical for scientists to study because the answer isn't unclear, right? So, of Mm -hmm. course, if you don't have a perfect answer, you're going to have debate among really good scientists as to what the answer should be, where there's been really clear, convincing evidence to do something, the the vaccine panel and the, at FDA and the CDC panel have pretty much been, you know, arm in arm. So I think what the, the issue actually is, is we have to come up with a better way to communicate to the public that we don't always have the perfect data to make the perfect answer. And there is a, sometimes bits of judgment and value calls going on here. And people have to be able to say, this is why they made that judgment or value call at this time. Um, I don't think like it just seems very kind of like un-American and unsort of scientific and so forth to kind of squelch legitimate debate when there is reason for there to be legitimate debate. Yeah, the, the, the problem is we're so many of us feel the need to or are used to hearing things in five second sound bites or 10 second sound bites. And that vaccine science doesn't fit into that bucket very well, if at all. And, you know, as we've as we've seen here going forward, it's just the fact that we, you know, trying to explain, you know, how the efficacy works and, and waning immunity and all these other things that are going on here and, and how the data keeps changing because we're learning more about these vaccines as more people get them and people are flipping out that they don't, you know, that the 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 reasoning and the information is constantly changing. Well, it's because we're we're still learning things about 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 the these vaccines and the other thing is i and i don't know maybe this is maybe this is just me for me watching both the the verb pack and the acip uh you know enough times but it seems like people there might be confusion over over which of what each panel does because they do two separate things the verb pack is supposed to help fda determine whether the vaccine is approvable ACIP is supposed to determine who should get the vaccine once it is approved. So that, but it, it seems like people are thinking of them both as like 
you know, either approval bodies or or just determining who's supposed to get them. And they're and they're asking, why is there all this disagreement? And it doesn't you know, they, I don't think people realize they're doing two different things. I'd like to uh, stand up for uh, uh, Peter Marks uh, um, a little bit in this uh, discussion, not that I want to uh, stand against uh, uh, robust and intricate uh, scientific communication, but I feel he does make a good point that if you, you, know, you want people to do something, you need to sort of kind of communicate pretty clearly what that, uh, what that is. And uh, um, to the extent that sort of kind of there's a um, disagreement, uh, uh, you know, from these uh, prominent uh, bodies, it's not going to uh, encourage the, uh, the best public health activities by the, uh, the public at large. So, uh, um, you know, I don't uh, think that, uh, you know, debate should be suppressed or anything like that, but there needs to be sort of kind of perhaps a, uh, a very clear outline of sort of kind of, uh, you know, you're going to hear a lot of different things and then we're going to uh, come to a scientific consensus through our, uh, through our processes and sort of it's, uh, um, it's hard to, uh, you know, make that, make that point, but I think uh, um, he's right that there needs to be a, uh, a more uh, robust uh, um, messaging on sort of kind of what, uh, what the public is supposed to do with this uh, at this point on uh, on boosters or uh, you know anything else yeah i mean what i actually um when i was thinking a little bit about this this week and for another story i don't know why i stumbled across like a piece i had written a long time ago um in the pandemic before the first um, vaccine advisory panel for, by fda which was basically like the um these panels were going to kind of like expose the public to some of the uncertainties in drug development, because I think, right, like if you um, are used to covering FDA advisory committees alone, right, even if, when there's, you know, products that don't obviously have this second layer of federal government review, it's it's not unusual, right, to see um, a split panel, to see people with different views, to even like hear a panel have a lot of criticisms or concerns about a development program, but then still vote in favor of it. So, Again, I think, you know, this isn't something like completely unique to the um, COVID um, situation. It's just a matter of um, a lot more people are being exposed to, you know, um, the complexities of science and scientific decision making. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one. And leading in, you know, or, you know, moving on from the, you know, Connected to the, the, you know, that those comments was were comments from um, Murray Lumpkin, a former Cedar uh, deputy director who's now at the Gates Foundation, was who was saying that um, regulate other regulators need to be able to see unredacted FDA inspection reports and other assessments, and you know, in in part because of the you know to help with uh, some of the pandemic related issues and, and you know just in general I think as well. Um, of course, industry wasn't excited about that, but I mean, could could we see something like that come out of the pandemic? I was actually a little surprised that FDA wasn't still isn't allowed to give even even under the um, mutual recognition agreements aren't allowed to give fully unredacted reports to um, you know to the other country, the trusted countries. I think it's one of those classic uh, uh, disclosure uh, double-edged uh, swords. Obviously. Uh, um, Industry would like more harmonization to the extent that it uh, allows them, uh, you know, a smoother development uh, pathway uh, across the world. But they uh, um, they don't want uh, a um, 
really high stakes uh, effort where sort of uh, you know sort of one disagreement means for kind of there's no uh, um, there's no approvals anywhere, and so that's sort kind of perhaps as we're kind of weighing on them in terms of kind of how they uh, how they assess or kind of where they uh, um, where they see the value of that kind of uh, you know broader disclosure. Yeah, it's a again, it's a, this is another difficult issue, but you know if it. This could be something that if you know if if they get some some people in Congress interested that they could um, you know this could this could be attached to a user fee bill or you know some other FDA related legislation going forward if they um, you know that would uh you know at least help with some of that some of the confidentiality in um, transparency issues that people are looking for. Finally, today we're going to take a look at the cost of an FDA application assessment. It's been well documented how eight month priority assessments are growing ever more popular compared to the traditional standard 12 month timeframe. And now an interesting trend is emerging. The gap between the costs to the agency to conduct a priority versus a standard assessment is narrowing. The difference was 1.23 million in FY 2020, the lowest since at least 2009. This of course raises questions about whether a 12 month assessment time still is necessary, especially as more and more applications obtain priority uh, assessments. Obviously, I don't think anyone wants to put any more on the FDA than necessary given the last 18 months, but do you think we eventually could see at least the idea of making eight months the standard assessment length? It was a uh, interesting uh, uh, trend you spotted there, uh, Derek. Obviously, sort of kind of the more that the uh, FDA uh, reviews things uh, in an eight-month eight time frame, the more sort of kind of their uh, systems are uh, um you know, aligned to uh, to do that, and obviously it's a lot of just sort of uh, you know people putting in the uh, the uh, the elbow grease to uh, get it done in that uh, um, in that time frame. But uh, I think uh, that uh, FDA, uh, what was it, two cycles ago, uh, uh, essentially sort of moved back from uh, ten months to uh, to twelve months because they thought they could sort of kind of actually sort of kind of move things uh, um, uh, more efficiently if they didn't have to. Uh, meet the uh, quicker deadline and could actually uh, approve things faster if there were fewer complete response letters and, uh, you know, everything could get done in the first uh, cycle. But uh, um, it uh, um, seems like they're uh, um, not so worried about that anymore. And I, uh, I think, uh, you know, not for, uh, um, not for this one, because this one seems pretty, uh, pretty complete. But, uh, you know, if uh, um, review uh, uh, trends seem to, uh, to hold over the next five years, I, uh, would not be surprised if uh, um, industry would expect uh, FDA to, uh, you know, perhaps ratchet back back down from uh, 12 to uh, to 10 again for the standard uh, the standard review. It's interesting to me to think about this conversation in light of like this general sort of questioning or potential push by some folks to think about like whether FDA has like too many of these various <laughs> review pathways and whether they should be consolidated and whether there's like efficiencies, if they did that, that would maybe help this process along. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, obviously, if you if you make if you're if you're trying to do a priority assessment, you're not thinking about, you know, extra communications with senior staff and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you're trying to consolidate the, you know, the expedited pathways, you know, cutting probably cutting the standard review to you know, down to the priority review length would probably not be a good idea because then, then what do you say? Like the, the expedited review is six months. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they could do that, but yeah, it's, it would be an interesting discussion if they, 
if they talked about it, how you would fit in things like breakthrough or R matter, you know, those things that that uh, require the extra communication and the extra, you know, kind of involvement of the FDA staff early on. Yeah, that's certainly uh, um, one possibility. I mean, the uh, um, uh, you know the uh, uh, prior review had 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 been six months, uh, and then they were kind of tacked on those uh, those two months were kind of to uh, um, encourage for kind of more first cycle approvals. So uh, um, you know, one possibility is for kind of perhaps to uh, um, you know sort of, uh, keep them both, but to make prior review even faster. And uh, um, obviously, industry would like that, but it sort of kind of means. Uh, um, more uh, efficiency uh, needs to be worked out of FDA. Yeah, I still wonder if we're kind of we're going to see kind of an organic, just continued sort of reduction in the number of twelve-month reviews, and to where it'll get to the point where they're doing a handful of them a year, and if you get one, it's not consider it's considered kind of a you know not necessarily a negative, but you ask the question, why didn't you get why didn't you get a priority review? And, you know, and then it gets the they do so few of them that it just kind of goes away on its own, which would be probably would not be, you know, I'm getting I mean, that probably wouldn't happen. But it'd be interesting to see if, if, you know, to watch, like you said, Matt, if, you know, over the next few years, standard reviews keep going down in terms of the number that are completed. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.